This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. Monday the 22nd of August, you are listening to Cable. I'm Guy Johnson, Alex Steele and Charlie Pellet, both off this week, but I have waiting in the wings the notable Marcus Ashworth, <laughs> who will be joining us uh, to update us on what is happening here. Marcus, I'm looking at a screen that looks fairly ugly. Equity markets absolutely battered today, certainly on the continent. The German DAX down by 2.32%. The euro is now well below parity, trading at 99.35. That's a fresh low for the year. Uh, the pound is trading with a 117 handle against the US dollar. Bonds have sold off pretty aggressively, particularly at the long end, actually, here in the UK. Um, you've, got, you've got big moves there. And at the center of all of this, an energy crisis. Gas prices up in the Netherlands, 13%. That's the, uh, the European benchmark. Uh, here in the UK, up 14%. It's not a pretty picture. It is not. And, um, you know, I don't know where to get the cheer up from because it's very hard to find anything. And it just seems to get worse. I mean, the only thing I can say is a lot of good bond deals came out from Europe today. There's, there's clearly action and, and, and people are uh, buying and selling uh, new bonds, which is a uh, sign the market is, is, is functioning uh, after a very quiet few weeks. So yep. um, we just have to make sure this gas price doesn't you know, carry on going up, really. Please. Well, on that note... I think there was a sharp sort of intake of breath around the UK a little bit earlier on, certainly in economic circles. UK inflation, mm. this according to a city note that was published a little bit earlier on, UK inflation is on track to rise above 18% for the first time in, let's call it, circa 50 years. This is going to happen at the beginning of next year. This is, to Marcus's point, as energy prices continue to shoot higher. This is a note that came out uh, from Citigroup a little bit earlier on. Basically, what they're doing is plugging in uh, the, uh, the off-gem numbers, the expected uh, hike that we're going to see coming through in October, which we're going to find out about on Friday, uh, and then further hikes coming through beginning of next year, and then picking us up to potentially kind of circa £6,000 at some point at the beginning of sort of springtime next year. Now, the last time inflation mm. was higher was 1976, Marcus. That was the oil shock. This kind of feels like an energy shock, shock certainly, and a broader energy shock. Like Maybe there's some grandstanding here, but a lot of people oh, are coming think- up with not too dissimilar numbers. Not, no, but a lot of people are coming up with not too dissimilar. Like, this isn't, they, are, they are at the high-end city now, but they're not out of the ballpark. Well, no, they are at the ballpark, but I mean, the, the ballpark is stretching. And yes, I know, you know, but I mean, the, they're all using the same Ford gas futures contract. This is not, you know, some form of divining of, 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 of Rosetta Stone. This is this is utter guesswork. And there is no factoring in, understandably, because we don't know yet, of what can be, will be done and will be done by uh, the government to ameliorate this, let alone other factors out there. You know, look at where the oil price is going. And uh, yes, the gas prices are not unbelievably linked as they perhaps used to be with oil. But at some point, with recessions coming and a raft of other stuff, I, I just don't see these numbers happening. Uh, and I think it's fuel to the fire. And yep. I find it very nervous. Uh, Have you been surprised on these sorts of. Have you been surprised that inflation has continued to? be as elevated as it is i will admit that 
hurts me, but I will admit that yes. And there's clearly some some further stuff coming through, which is is going to embed into a a, a lower rate of inflation next year than than we have now, but still higher than one might have uh, have expected. There's clearly secondary effects yeah. uh, coming through, and and clearly you know this ongoing push up in gas prices in Europe in particular is is adding just a yeah. much more misery on top. Okay, we've got a few minutes, so let's kick this around because I kind of think this is important <laughs> how we're getting to this. So joining me now here in the studio in London is David Goodman from Economics Team. What do you make of this? Well, it's interesting you're talking about underestimating inflation there because it feels like for the past year we have had economists underestimate inflation kind of at every turn, both on the, yeah. the overall peak but also month by month they've been, I think it's something like eight out of the last nine or something like that individual releases have have been a surprise on the upside so i guess if we have one missing by kind of three or four percentage points on the upside or something that's not that different from from what we've seen before i mean it's obviously a headline grabbing number um one interesting thing i I took away from it was this idea about how it doesn't assume any how many how much help comes from the, the government and people were saying that was the reason why it was perhaps too high but I think that if you look at what help the government could do, some of it is going to come off headline inflation, things like reducing VAT would, would, would. But yeah. the kind of direct aid for households we've seen from so far from Sunak, that's going to kick in this winter. The ONS is still kicking that around to see how that's going to be treated. And yeah. I, I think it may, it's may more likely be treated as a kind of income on the income side rather than the prices side. And if that's the case, then you could do a lot on that side of stuff and still not actually make any difference to where the headline rate is. Obviously, it's better for households, but the actual statistics will show a, a big, high big rate. Jump. Yeah. Right. So, David, you're saying that the ONS is not necessarily going to benefit a headline level of inflation, even though the overall effect may or may not be uh, uh, beneficial, as you said, to the income side of uh, of the household balance sheet. Yeah. But at the same time, uh, there are other factors. I mean, in, in the context, and let's not get you know too high this is, this is utter speculation it's fine we are, we are definitely not getting too high let's let's make this I, very I, clear i totally no get that they have to that, that's the job of an economist i've done this myself you know you have to come up with some form of expectation to lead your clients and uh, and lay out your overall economic uh, expectations and i'm not necessarily having a problem with that but at the same point this is predicated on a bunch of forward gas contracts which are highly liquid at the best of times very volatile and subject to manipulation, both good and bad, uh, for whatever hedging needs are needed, and there's a lot of hedging needs going out there, these can fall back as quickly as they rise. And we may be in a situation, if recession were to hit, as we are widely expecting now in Europe and in the UK, probably fourth quarter, if or not, we're all, effect- all effectively right. already in it. So you're saying that this the market is mispri- You're saying quickly. that the market is, because it's based on the curve, you're saying the market is mispricing gas right now. Well, I think they're mispricing a lot of things, and, and mispricing is, okay. is, a, is not a, quite the right expression. It's just the fact that they have hedging uh, needs are what they are. It doesn't necessarily mean yeah. they're people's base case. It's just what how you hedge your book out of the tail risk. David, if one one of the key key uh, inputs into their model clearly is what is happening with Ofgem, um, and to, to Marcus's point, we don't have a lot. We don't have complete visibility on that. How are they getting to the 6,000 in terms of expectations? There? Are they simply, as Marcus says, just looking at the forward gas curve and saying, this is where prices are going, this is where the market is pricing, it is efficient, therefore, ultimately, 
yes, it may be hedging, yes, it may be other factors, but that is where, where the price is, is ultimately going to land. I think so. I think they're looking at where prices have gone in the last week and kind of assuming that that kind of sticks. And as Marcus says, yeah. that, that could may or may not happen. We've no idea with, with the market at the moment. One thing I noticed within within their forecast is that their, their forecast for this week's announcement for the right. October price cap is actually a fair bit more punchy than some of the other stuff we've seen. I think it's about 3,700 relative to 3,500. So that's already baked into these figures is a slightly higher figure for October. So as you say, we actually know all the all the we know all the inputs for that off-gen number for October, yeah. or, or we should do. So the fact that there's such a broad range shows why. Yeah, I mean, going further ahead, you're going to get an even broader range, and this is why you get these kind of huge differences. It seems in forecasts out to out to January and beyond. Okay. <clears throat> what do we think? Okay, let's let's do, okay let let's assume that the city's at one end, and it's maybe not going to be quite as high as this. What they then go on the to. Other. What they what they then go on to talk about is the policy response and talk about what the policy response could ultimately look like. They see rates, David, I, I, if you were to see that kind of inflation and you're going to get RPI north of 20, they see rates having to go to 6 to 7%. Is that, is that po- in any way possible here in the UK? The bank, the bank has been hawkish, but it's not in, it, we're in a completely different stratosphere, to use their words, if we're into that kind of environment. Oh, completely. I mean, I think that we, we've talked a lot about, where, about how, right, how high rates could go. But I mean, we're already in a different place now because if people are talking, markets are talking about rates hitting 3.5% next year, we've been having this conversation six months ago. We just said, that's no, no way, but, that's never going to happen. So obviously, the situation can change. And with the BOE, you feel if, if inflation carries on climbing through October, through November, through December, into next year and stays in, I think City's forecast had double digits well into ne- basically into next yeah. fall, they're going to have to carry on hiking because you can't stop hiking if inflation is in double digits. Like that, I think that feels like where they can kind of see that path roll because it's just the bank's hands are tied, it feels like, with inflation this high. Yeah, but David, I mean, in some senses, what what a central bank is supposed to look through a bunch of stuff to where its forward uh, estimate of inflation might be in say two to three years' time. Uh, I appreciate it still thinks inflation in the UK is going to be, you know, close to where we are now uh, in a year's time. So it is very much high bound, you know, um, and that's clearly why the market is pricing in to this my mind my, my slightly crazy three point seven five percent by March. I know that's another further 200 basis points of rate hikes, which I don't think we'll get. But I, I very much get your point, though. Are they going to have to do 50 next time? Yes. Will that push them to do another 25, another 50 possibly before Christmas and maybe more? Almost certainly yes again. But there will come a point where surely they, they will see perhaps, perhaps it's a, the monthly figures you should be looking at rather than the annual headline. And if they start seeing, um, you know, a negative or flat monthly uh, you know, increments that then they can therefore look through that and actually start to do something slightly more more, more moderate on, on rate increases. Is, is that viable? Perhaps. But I, I just think I go back to this idea, like so just looking at City's forecast now, which I've got in front of me, September 2023, they're saying 14.5% inflation. The idea that the BOE can, can, can kind of conceivably leave rates unchanged at no, okay, yeah, that well, high, like that they're getting, they're getting out, so yeah. much of a kick in now anyway for not acting quick, quickly enough. Can you imagine the kind of headlines if inflation is still still up there and like bank sits on his hands and does nothing i'd rather read the evening standards you know read my pisces you know monthly chart than some of this stuff though because it is you know they have no idea and try to forecast sensible economic predictions at the moment in almost any category 
is semi-pointless. Hence, the reason why central banks have, have dropped doing forward guidance, because it leads to no benefit. Uh, are we all not wasting our time trying to pontificate uh, forward things which may or may not happen? Yeah, I think that's why perhaps there's been some skepticism about this forecast, because it's where we are now is very much kind of finger in the air. And obviously, they've got their model and they fed in these the inputs, and this is what they've come up with. But yeah, when you're, I mean, the bank themselves has said, like, look, we put a lot yeah. less confidence in our forecast now than we would normally. And as you said in the past, Marcus, their forecasts normally aren't <laughs> something to be that confident about. So if they're even less confident than that, then that shows you what, like, how and certain things are and kind of, yeah, you're going to get, I think you're going to get calls that probably, you may, may see more calls up towards this end, but you may see come, some come the other way as well, just because that's the nature of where we are yeah. at the moment. Marcus, um, the trouble is, is obviously, go on. No, you go on. No, I was just going to say, I mean, you can understand if you're on strike outside, you know, Felixstowe port and, you know, you're seeing 10% inflation and someone says to you, here's, here's seven and a half. You're going, well, I want 10. And that's, you know, if it, is, if it does go to 13, 40%, someone's going to want, I want 12, 13. It's very hard to well, that's then, the, that's know, the problem. explain away. Yeah. Yeah, How does the Tory government, the next prime minister, survive this? I, if, you are, if you are talking about... Throw money at it. <laughs> this is all for how point. long? For how long? Can you, so as long I, I, as it takes. No, no, I'm being serious because I've just spoken to a gas analyst who said, actually, don't be worried about this winter. Worry about next winter, because the yeah. way that the structure of the market is developing at the moment, you could see shortages. LNG, when China comes back, Europe will not be able to buy the same amount of LNG next winter as it will this winter. And that is going to present a huge problem. Say, say cost, the cost of living stays as high as it is. Through 2022 into 2023, how does a government manage that? These kinds of incredibly high prices that are going to have massive demand destruction implications. Well, you know, we do have the fortune of having had a lot of stimulus in our system, which is half the reason why we got these problems now. Yeah. Uh, to rest on, we have a very stable economy in the context of employment, savings, the, the general corporate household, banking sectors are all in in, in fine shape, should we say? It's uh, a government debt to ratio, which is not brilliant. It's, you know, in the 90s, but it could be worse. We have a fully efficient uh, bond market, which is actually yep. starved of, of paper at the moment. You know, we are able to withstand quite an awful lot of, of, of pain, which we're going to have to. There's no doubt about it. Trust is going to have to, if it is her, of course, is he's going to have to throw 30 to then probably 60 billion at the wall straight away. And there is contingency in the ability to Is that going to, to be enough to get them re-elected in 2024? Is that going to be enough I to think get them re-elected? It's all in going to be about. Yes, it could be. I'm not saying it will, but it certainly is possible because what's the alternative? Someone else spending just as much or more in a slightly different way. It comes down to whether or not you think the response and the forward uh, plans make sense, and that we still don't know the answer to. David Gibbon, thank you very much indeed, sir. Always a pleasure. Love having you on the show. Marcus and I are going to stick with you. We're going to talk about what is happening at Felixstowe next. Strikes have started. What impact will they have? Are they going to be inflationary, these strikes? And how quickly can we find our way around them? That conversation is next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. It is a, a, a kind of issue for the logistics industry and the freight industry and the shipping sector here in the UK. Uh, as Lizzie mentioned, Felix Stowe is the UK's largest container port. 
But we do have other ports, uh, so they'll help to pick up some of that slack. The issue is, if you do reroute freight away from its traditional uh, uh, travel plans, etc., there will be a cost, and those costs will be passed on to importers, traders, and potentially, ultimately, consumers. That was the Ports Association CEO, Richard Ballantyne, speaking to Bloomberg a little bit earlier on regarding the strike that has now crippled UK's biggest container port, Felixstowe. Uh, it's going to be on basically all this week, but the effects of which could last for much, much longer. Joining us now for more on this story is Bloomberg Managing Editor for Global Business, EMEA, Eric Fanner. Eric, talk to us about the effect that this strike is going to have, both in, in the near term and potentially in the long term. Yeah, so in the near term, I mean, it, it means a shutdown of the, of the biggest container port in the U.K., handling about one-third of the container traffic. That's obviously in a situation where you've already got tight supply chains, rising costs, shortages of some goods appearing, you know, from time to time. That's that's not helpful. Um, and uh, it means that shippers need to find alternative sources uh, or routes, rather, to, to get their goods into the U.K. Um, it, you know doesn't mean people are not going to get fresh food, things like that. That tends to come in through other routes, like the uh, the ferries and the, the tunnel on trucks rather than containers. You're talking here more about consumer goods, you know, non-perishables, things like that. Um, but that stuff, you know, starts to pile up as well in, in other places and, and doesn't get sold. And you get shortages at stores eventually. It depends how long it goes on, of course. Um, at the moment, we're set for an eight-day strike, and uh, that could extend. Other ports could could see similar tensions potentially. Um, so that's one effect. The other big thing is just is is inflation, um, which is already rising and getting getting pretty alarming in the UK. Um, the more shortages you get, like this, the more inflation you get. The more you know, the, the cost uh, pressures will keep rising. So those are kind of the, the twin effects that you're going to see here. So, Eric, it's, uh, you know, obviously, this seems to be a bit of a point of principle, which is keeping the sides apart here, but they're not miles apart. I think seven and a half plays against 10, that there's also a cash payment involved. Um, do we do we sense there is a there is a, a reasonable chance there could be a rapprochement before the this this strike is uh, embedded or are we set for and you're just your best uh, feeling for this more like a, the, the Trail, train strikes, which go on at the moment, which seem to go on forever, with uh, with no, never a chance of the two sides coming together. Yeah, that's an interesting question, and of course, yeah, it would take a bit of, of crystal ball gazing. I mean, as you say, I think that you know that they're not miles apart. On the other hand, some of the rhetoric that you're getting from the unions, and we're seeing more of it today, uh, after some of the inflation forecasts were notched upward further um, uh, from some analysts. Um, with some of the union leaders saying, well, wait a minute, maybe we should hold out for even more. Um, so all of a sudden, that, that gap between what they had said they wanted and uh, and what's being offered, you know, starts to you know, potentially widen again. Eric, th these ships are going to go basically to other ports on the continent. And as you say, the, the containers are going to pile up there. You're going to get then the short sea routes bringing some of that container traffic back in potentially to other ports, or it'll just sit there and wait for the strike to go over, or it'll come back round via the tunnel, etc. How quickly can we unwind this eight-day strike, though, in terms of the impact it's going to have with those containers sort of stacking up? Is it going to take kind of two or three weeks to fully unwind the effect of an eight-day strike? 
Yeah, I would think you'd be looking at something like that. I mean, it's interesting. We saw a bit of this this kind of thing actually in reverse, um, you know, uh, last year um, or during the COVID pandemic when uh, some of the ferry traffic was disrupted and the, the tunnel traffic um, because of the truck driver shortage and, and COVID testing requirements and, and, and that sort of thing. And, and you saw some um, you saw some of the traffic there being diverted the other way. Um, and that, you know, that caused disruptions for um, we also had disruptions at Felix Stowe due to truck drivers as well. That affected fuel. Um, and, and so those things, you know, they, they took they t- they tended to take a couple of weeks to, to, to sort out. Now, in, in this case, you know, potentially if these things drag on, if they don't come to an agreement within that eight day period, then, of course, it goes on longer than that. Well, I mean, Eric, I mean, thankfully, I don't have small children anymore, but are, are we, we're not talking quite yet of not being able to get the whatever the, equivalent, the latest cabbage patch doll is these days. Um, you know, we're not talking. We are talking about Christmas <laughs> still going ahead, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you do tend to get some alarmist uh, alarmist stories about Christmas being canceled. Um, that's become a bit of a theme in the UK in, in recent years, um, you know, for various reasons. And, and that tends to bring it home, I think, for, for consumers. I mean, uh, you know, obviously these, these companies and retailers do need to order stuff in advance. Uh, this is a good time to bring it in uh before the uh, the selling season gets underway, I don't think an eight day strike at this point at one port is going to uh, cancel Christmas. But it's you know definitely going to be a bit uh, grinchy potentially on your uh, on your wallets and uh, and if a certain product you know has a real run on it yeah. and uh, this thing goes on, then all bets are off, right? Final quick question, Eric. the The situation we find ourselves in here in the UK is we've got a range of strikes now underway. Is there, a, is there a situation where we now find ourselves in where actually there is a sort of aggregate effect of all of these strikes? And, and that is the desire. I, you want to have different bits of the economy being affected at different times. And that's where you're going to get the maximum pain from the unions. The train strikes are one thing. Then you pile up a, a, a port strike on top of it. You get another strike here. You get another strike there. It creates an impression from the unions about what is going on. Do you think that's what is happening here to Marcus's point about trying to resolve some of this? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really interesting point, and and uh, you know there are other other disruptions as well. There's strikes as well. We've got the barristers striking. We've got yep. um, the Royal Mail. The postal workers uh, later this week are set to strike. There's been talk of other you know public sector workers. Uh, clearly, there is something broader going on. It's been called you know the summer of discontent in the UK. Um, I mean, other countries are seeing labor action as well, but the UK is particularly. Yep. It's, it seems to be on the cutting edge of this sort of thing. And, and, and of course, you know, that tends to help the union case to a certain extent if, yep. if there's a sense that, um, you know, Eric, everybody is, is pushing for this. Great stuff. Thank you very much indeed. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. 5.30 in the City of London. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I say we. I'm Guy Johnson in London. Marcus Ashworth joins me. Alex Steele is out for the week, enjoying a well-deserved break. Financial markets look a little bit like this. European markets closing firmly in the red, led lower by the German DAX today, down by 2.32%. The car makers in particular were under pressure today, but industrials broadly across Europe have had a very, very tough day. Energy prices have been spiking. UK NAT gas is up by 14.21% today. Uh, over the last 30 days or so uh, in Europe, we have seen the cost of NAT gas go up by circa 70%. It is a huge 
pop that we continue to see day by day. That is now being starting to be priced into the currency markets. The euro has fallen sharply today. We're seeing broad dollar strength. Uh, we are now trading at spot 99.45. We are at the lows of the year for the euro. The pound is also under pressure on the cable rate. We're trading 117.75. The bond market generally has been on offer today. Um, despite the fact that we are expecting yields to go sharply higher, driven by central banks, we are seeing uh, a big kind of repricing today as a result of that. Uh, but it does stand in stark contrast to the economic news that we are getting of the concern these high energy prices are going to have a major impact in terms of growth. Another story that we've been watching very carefully as today has been what's been happening in the banking sector. We continue to watch what is happening with Credit Suisse with interest. I feel I spent the last 10 years talking about Deutsche Bank and the troubles and trials that it has had. Marcus, Credit Suisse has definitely taken over that mantle. And the gloves apparently are finally off in Zurich. We had a whole load of chief executives that have sort of tinkered and sort of tried to figure out how to get the uh, the investment bank and credit suites to work. But it's lost and it continues to lose money. And so far this year, it's lost circa a billion dollars in the first six months of the year. Now, apparently, we are going to see the latest management team coming in, led by Ulrich Kerner, Kerner uh, and basically laying waste to all of this. Is this... Was this inevitable, Marcus? Well, in some senses, yes. But I mean, the, the great thing about Credit Suisse is there's a rake to stand on. They'll 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 rush for it first uh, and step on it and get whacked in the face. And it, it, essentially, it's their risk culture throughout everything you look at, from green sill to uh, structured notes, uh, the, um, the SPAC rush. Uh, uh, you know, they 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 go for risk in, in a very aggressive leverage way. And that's the problem with cleaning this bank up. And if you look to the, the Swiss compatriot UBS, who you know a decade or whatever more ago took a really, you know, big meat, meat cleaver to their, their investment bank, uh, quite bizarrely we all thought at the time because you know they got rid of a lot of very good and, and profitable businesses, but they did it to get you know basically their, their costs down and to get the you know return on equity to a level whereby they would be uh, and and have been you know re- rewarded with training about book value ever since, whereas everyone else has, has wallowed trying to get away with it. You know, Deutsche being the most famous one, perhaps. But Deutsche Bank, I've got lucky, I think, the last year or two. Their trading business, which is ironically the thing they were not going to focus on, has bailed them out. Uh, Credit Suisse is, is in a unique situation. It has a wonderful sort of image and, and, and private banking and, and wealth management arm, which is people associated with. However, it's got this legacy of a very US-based businesses from First Boston, from DLJ, Roth, other things, which which has got uh, a lot of businesses they can't get rid of very quickly, particularly on the securitization side, which they've been very aggressive in building up. That's a long-term business. You can't just clip that yep. off, fire a bunch of people and move on. So, you know, yeah, they've, they've gone through the management ranks. I don't think there's anyone left now uh, from you know, a year or two ago. Uh, maybe the new lot has had a better chance of going at it. But, you know, the point is you get in the spiral, don't you? Yep. You get... You, you know, people, the your people you want to keep leave because they know that even if they get locked yep. in for a bit, it's only going to last for so long. Uh, you can't retain a, a, and, and grow businesses, and you're forced to keep on cutting into more and more, you know, into, into the void. Difficult. Well, one. Let's get, and let's they get can't another... merge. No, well, that's, that's that, yeah. And that's and, the key thing. And that's one of the tricky things. Let's get another voice on it. It's another take on this. Uh, Alison Williams uh, covers global investment banks over at Bloomberg Intelligence and joins us now on the line. 
Alison, Marcus kind of lays out what is happening here and talks about the difficulty of shrinking an investment bank that is that is a complicated machine. How easy is it for I, how easy is it for management to to change this business to shrink this business down to a size that they feel represents the right kind of level of risk? So it's it's tough, and and we've seen that you know over the last several years with the firm sort of you know trying to do things at the edges, um, and I think you know just after one too many uh, missteps and and reported losses, something more drastic um, obviously had had to be done, and that's why we're getting the management change and talk of um, being more aggressive. I think investors you know always over the long term you know, really tend to favor the wealth management businesses at Credit Suisse and UBS and have always wanted to have a smaller investment bank, there are definitely parts of the investment bank needed to support the wealth asset management business. So, um, you know, M&A is a, is a big one of those, and that, I think, is why that business is considered to be, you know, quote, relatively safe. Um, but for Credit Suisse, if you look over the long term, you know, their areas of strength, cash equities has historically been a strong business, and the overall equities business was, was strong about a decade ago, um, but they've um, definitely shrunk some around the edges there. Um, and with Prime Brokerage, it's, you know, that there's the exit there, and then you, you were definitely seeing some ancillary impacts to the other businesses. So, to your question, you know, about how do you shrink it, to some extent, um, the market is doing some of that work for Credit Suisse in terms of, um, you know, cutting down that business. I think the big question is the securitization business that Credit Suisse has. It's relatively unique. Uh, you talked a little bit about how Deutsche Bank is faring better. I mean, part of the issue with Credit Suisse is that the areas that the, the bank is in, in the investment bank, the areas that they're strong in, such as cash equities, such as the securitization and credit trading business are just not the, you know, those businesses have been under pressure, especially in the in the environment of the last six months and look to continue to be so just given some of the market trends. Um, they talked about raising capital, outside capital uh, for the securitization business, but that seems uh, very difficult in terms of execution. I'm not, I'm not sure how they can carry that out. Um, so, <laughs> right. so, yeah, so I think, you know, I, I think that, the point of saying that is I think they wanted to really come across and say, look, like we are going to be, you know, we are going to do something more than trimming around the edges. We recognize that something more has to be done. You know, the question is what what really happens in terms of the execution there? So, so Alison, you're talking about potential uh, either hiving off or partnering perhaps on the securitization business, but we're not really talking here Credit Suisse merges with UBS or Credit Suisse gets sold, you know, in some frame of because... It's a national champion. Uh, the Swiss government Correct. won't let. Uh, it's to really it, it shrink. Is there any way out of here? I think so because you know even though you know we in the investment community like to speculate about deals, um, I think it, I, I don't see a U.S. bank coming in. I think if anything, they would just you know they would seek to aggressively go after individuals in the business and, and seek to. Yeah. Um, do it that way. Um, they've already had some success there. 
Um, I, and so I think that that is what they would do. Obviously, the, the wealth business is a very um, attractive business to overseas buyers. But to your point, um, you know, it is a national champion. Part of the issue why UBS and Credit Suisse are more regulated than yep. many of the other global banks is that, that their size related to the Swiss economy is already sizable. So I think that um, <laughs> prevents a merger. Alison, great stuff. Thank you very much indeed. Bloomberg Intelligence is Alison Williams. Up next, we're going to talk about the European energy crisis. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Marcus Ashworth. So the question we were debating a little earlier, Marcus, on television was whether or not really you need to turn up for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday of this week. Friday is all that matters, certainly for U.S. investors. Jay Powell is coming up. How important do you actually think it's going to be? Uh, I'm trying to write something about it at the moment. and I'm struggling. Um you know, it seems to be he has to sort of eschew this sort of dovish pivot, which people try to label him of ha- having done at the last uh, press conference. Certainly all the rhetoric out of uh, Fed heads the last uh, week or two has been increasingly hawkish uh, to not that much response, though I think the bond market today is is starting to sort of get a little bit worried about it, perhaps. Um, so the question is, is, you know, do you crash the economy to curtail inflation or do you try and wing your way through it and hope for some form of you know putative soft landing uh you know no one's quite certain yet despite the fed sort of talking tough and indeed acting tough if you think about uh you know close to a billion dollars a month off off the balance sheet and at the same time you know not just but 75 basis point rate hikes and i I think we might well get another one just to try and drum home the message that the fed isn't uh going to stop here but it's difficult you know this is the annual think and like let's think of the, the latest policy and what should we be doing next differently i don't think the luxury is there this time they've got to perhaps i wonder if they will do i hope they do a bit of a mere culprit and say look we got this so badly wrong all of us you know why do we to we're sleep at the wheel why do we leave stimulus in for too long um and how will we better somehow try and get a grip on trying to forecast inflation? Powell has mentioned that they don't know much about inflation. He said that at the equivalent ECB thing in Sintra in, in June. So, you know, maybe we might get a little bit more sort of, you know, what what can we do in a situation like this? There's not little we can do and forecasting it accurately, uh, but we will do X and we'll do Y. And, and I think, unfortunately, at some point, he's going to have to ram home this point that the economy is going to have to suffer. Yeah, we may have to actually generate quite a, a large amount of demand destruction and, as you say, potentially cause a recession. One of the factors that the uh, the Fed is not having to fight at the moment in the way that the ECB is, and it's going to be interesting to hear from Isabel Schnabel speaking uh, at Jackson Hole as well. I think she's going to speak towards the tail end of the week too. Um, it is the energy story. Energy prices have spiked sharply higher today. Once again, you've seen the Dutch uh, contract up by around 13%. The UK contract is up by around 14%. They were up even more than that earlier on. This we hear from, once again, the Russians, that they are going to conduct maintenance on the Nord Stream pipeline, Nord Stream 1. The the, the pipeline is only operating at 20% capacity at the moment, but they feel that they need to do further 
further maintenance on that pipeline. It may only be out for two or three days, but this comes at such a critical time uh, as we're heading into winter. Let's bring Todd Gillespie into the conversation. Uh, he covers European power, gas and renewables here at Bloomberg. Todd, just walk us through the reasons we've seen this latest spike. Hi, guys. Yeah, well, I mean, the main thing is that uh, Russia's basically said that it needs to take down uh, the Nord Stream gas pipeline for three days of repairs from August 31st. So it again raises this fear that Russia is, you know, sort of concocting excuses for um, basically putting out of business, uh, putting out of action Europe's energy supply. Um, we've seen it with this uh, issue with the gas turbine with Siemens um, and lots of uh, speculation essentially that Russia was doing this in order to manufacture a crisis, coming up with new reasons one after another, to uh, essentially constrain supply. Uh, and obviously, that freaks out traders. Every time you do that, you're, you're basically freaking out the market and saying, hey, you know, um, you know for years, we've, we've, we've been a reliable supplier. But actually, you know, now maybe, maybe, you know, there's something new that sort of comes on, you know, comes onto the table and means that we need to put this out of action for a while, um, basically beyond the, uh, beyond the scope, beyond the remit of um, of what anyone would, uh, would would ordinarily expect. Todd, not to be too simplistic here, but I like it simple. Um, would we put this down to uh, today's price action, basically pretty much all being down to this three-day closure and then playing rope-a-dope with us in a sense that illustrates how skittish, how illiquid, and you know how perhaps the forward hedging of requirements are, are, are so all over the place? It, or is that, or am I missing other factors, or something a bit more complex? Totally. I mean, it, it is quite simple. I mean, this market has been on edge for months now. Um, you're seeing in the power market, especially, you see trading happen sometimes two and a half hours, three hours. The first trades come through on the exchange after the market open. Basically, traders are sitting at their keyboards, like you know, hesitating with their fingers over the mouse, waiting for someone else to make the first move. This is like you know, in normal times, you'd see you know the market open within a couple of minutes, you'd see a trade. Now you're seeing people really on edge, um, very, very skittish, as you said. I think that's a really good you know, term to describe this. Um, and any little indication from Russia over what they're doing with you know, Europe's infrastructure and sending gas is you know, it's the main driver across the board here. Marcus and I were debating this a little bit earlier on. City put out a note a little bit earlier on, um, yeah. and they were predicting 80% inflation in the UK, in the UK going forward. Uh, and the basis for that was the forward energy curve that we're looking at right now, the forward gas curve, which they're extrapolating into the off-gem um, price hikes that we're going to see uh, on the cap. How how accurate, how how useful is that forward curve at the moment? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's a that's a that's a million dollar question. Um, I think you could say that. I mean, it, it moves it moves up and down all the time. Um, I think one thing that you can consistently see is that people are pricing in risk, um, you know, constantly. Um, we're not just talking about, you know, traders having to um, sell at higher prices um, because the, you know, sort of because of the, you know, the wholesale cost itself and the, you know, the supply, the, the supply is tightening. But you're also seeing traders having to, you know, trade at higher prices because, you know, because of collateral, you're having to see people pass on costs. To heavy industry that are higher just because they need to insure themselves um, against risk uh, in the future. So there's a lot of components that sort of 
constitute these prices. Um, I mean, I must say as well that I mean the off-gen price gap—that's that's one thing for households as well in the UK. But you're also talking about massive business costs too, um, which, which aren't protected by any kind of upper limit. Um, I mean, I've spoken to restaurants and heavy industry today. Um, you know, some of them are putting themselves on flexible contracts, so they don't even have to. You know, they're, they're not hedging at all. They're essentially buying on the day-to-day market, um, and some of them are essentially just switching off uh, and lowering output. Um, Depending on what the day, what the daily spot price is that day, I mean that's that's sort of how on edge um, industry is right now. So, do you have any good news at all, Todd? No, <laughs> but it, if you do, it, it would be great. Gratefully, have... <laughs> I did hear one interesting thing actually yesterday from a good from a from a good source who basically said that a lot of his big big manufacturing customers are taking this as such. A shock that they are rushing to put solar panels on all of their buildings because the payoff for solar has um, massively yeah. sped up. So previously it was about you know 12 years to pay off a uh, solar panel. Now for some other it's one year. I mean that's how expensive electricity has become. That the the price of installing solar. Can you get the solar? The so so there's that, yeah. that raises two questions. So I'm interested about mm-hmm. a. Is there, the, is there the capacity? Do we have enough solar cells if everybody wanted them to do that? And B, is there enough of a trained workforce to then come and fit them? Uh, no, is the answer to both of those questions. Yeah, I mean, that's a massive thing as well. You know, we're talking about existing supply issues across the board that are already, you know, biting into, biting into industry, biting into renewable supply sector. Um, and yeah, I mean, especially, I mean, if you talk about batteries as well, I mean, a similar thing is happening. You see issues with lithium supply. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not pretending that that's going to be a magic bullet by any, by any means, but it is forcing businesses to look yeah. at their energy efficiency and driving net zero as well. Um, we're looking at some of these big users really, you know, being, being resourceful and stepping up and accelerating plans, things that they were going to be doing five, 10 years from now, they're doing as soon as possible. Some of them before October when their contract renews. And when, when yeah. winter starts, just going to point that one out exactly. as well. Timing <laughs> is excellent. <laughs> it, summer in summer, and I know summer's now, isn't it? Yes, you're absolutely right. So, I mean, Todd, the, the, there are some good things, I think, uh, putting apart that the European and the UK and Norway and the rest of it haven't got together for like a G, whatever number you want to call it, summit on it and try and, and hammer stuff out. But behind the scenes, there does seem to be an amazing level of European integration working with each other i mean there was one day when we had to pay some dicks amount from brussels to kick up a coal plant to, because you know the east end of london was about to close down but equally at the same time uh the uk has been you know presumably profiting as well but supplying uh, a load of uh energy across to europe particularly france i believe so as long as we can persuade norway not to get too uh possessive over, over their own sort of natural gas over the winter there is some semblance that that everyone's trying to work together and help each other out and and at least the gas storage in in, in germany is getting well i wouldn't say it's not yet at 95 percent, which is presumably they can't add any more after that but at least it's getting much better than it was uh yes so i mean i i think i mean that's not i mean i think one thing i would say about the france situation which is a lot of people have reminded me is that you know historically we import electricity from France during the winter because we get tight and they have this massive nuclear capacity, which is normally, you know, doing quite well. Obviously, the opposite is on the cards for this winter. And I think we've already seen, you know, a few times recently, we've seen um, 
the sort of grid operators essentially having to coordinate between the UK and France because France is basically trying to pull more electricity from the UK uh, than the UK is willing to give um, on the grid. And I feel like when we get to winter and, you know, supply and demand get really quite tight, um, we're going to see potentially more uh, instances like that and some of that which might even build up to some political tensions. Um, I mean, I think also we're talking about European cooperation. I mean, looking at who's set to be the next prime minister, I mean, I was having this, this discussion with um, some editors today. I mean, we're talking about um, big reforms to the European energy markets that would be needed to kind of, you know, make any sort of reform sustainable. Um, and the sort of rhetoric that we're hearing out of um, the likely next prime minister, Liz Trust, in terms of dealing with that and cooperating with Brussels on something like this, um, I think that might be a big ask for, for the current Conservative Party to, to do. Okay, that's an interesting point to leave it. Um, thank you very much. I, I thought it was pretty interesting. It'd be interesting to see whether the Norwegians are prepared to lower their prices. And I have to say, the cooperation point, uh, I don't think has hit its uh, hit its toughest spot, I think. Todd, great stuff. Thank you very much indeed. Todd Gillespie, <laughs> uh, Bloomberg European Power, Gas and Renewables reporter. That That's the... I, Marcus, I take yeah, your point about point. the fact there's been cooperation thus far, but, but it hasn't got crunchy yet. No, it hasn't. And I, and I do take uh, the point. I, I think, you know, look, there's a lot, awful lot of play. To, I don't think we should re- reach into what's going to happen with European relations. But I mean, other than that, it, it's, you know, when it comes to it, you know, probably goes back the other way. Will there be uh, a rapprochement? I mean, the other thing about the Norwegian supplies, these are long term contracts. So they're not going to be all of a sudden uh, uh, Santa. Norway coming to deliver us, you know, much cheaper no. uh, gas. That's just not going to happen. Uh, it's more about availability, and, and we've seen with Germany. Germany's been prepared to pay very high prices to secure what it can secure. That has left a lot of other countries uh, in a difficult situation because, bear in mind, it's not just Germany's reliant on, on on Russian gas. There's there's a, a raft of other Eastern European countries which are in a very difficult situation. So, yeah, it, it's going to require a lot of. Uh, uh, rapprochement and, and, and coordination and, and a general sort of, that's why I say I think that it would be good to see some form of uh, uh, getting ahead of the problem and having, having a, a, a more of a, a, a global yeah, you know, yeah. pull together on this. Well, but okay, so perhaps... you bring up global, and global's interesting because China, so far Europe has outbid Asia for energy contracts, but China's not really competing in a big way at the moment. Yeah, but India do... is. Okay, India, yeah, but India's being outbid. China has deeper pockets. And you do wonder whether, if you were to see, this is the point about next winter. China's not back yet. So we've basically got a year to get this sorted before China comes back and starts buying LNG cargoes, which it's not doing in the, in a big way right now. And that's one yeah, of the problems the- that, that I think we're going to face. I, the, 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 the problem I have with all of these conversations is that we seem to be treating it like a one-year, six-month problem. But let's say it's not. Let's say like, we, it's going to take 10 years to get through an energy transition. Let's say two, the first two or three of those could be very bumpy from an energy point of view. Yeah, well, we, we have uh, failed to fix the roof when the sun was shining with very low interest rates and uh, indeed plentiful uh, energy supplies, at least be thought. Uh, and clearly there's only so many sort of wind farms of, on Dogger Bank, one can build uh, and get them up and running. But, you know, there, there are some good signs. I mean, Centrica's done a very big deal. A lot of supply coming across in the US. Um, there will be, you know, uh, more th- uh, other wider ways of, 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 of providing supply, one hopes. It's the question of, will we avoid 
uh, at some point a, a, a mass need and, and lack of supply. Yeah. I, think, I think that's certainly Crunch. coming. And you're right. I mean, obviously next year it, and the four contracts are, are pointing to big problems there. Uh, that's something which, you know, I, I, I'm almost too scared to even have a think about, actually, because I think getting through the next six months is, is impenetrably yeah. hard enough to work out that what happens after that is like, um, there'd be dragons. Well, it's a, but, but, it's a, but if you're putting, but if you're putting short-term fiscal in, if it suddenly turns into a longer-term problem, then you've got a much bigger issue. If, if you're, if yeah, you which is the turning... reason, which this yep. is exactly the reason why you could argue it's not. It's been short-termist that perhaps the French and the, gov- uh, and the German approach, in the sense that, that particularly the French approach, they they try to, uh, you know, putting a cap on, doesn't solve anything. It, it, okay. In fact, it makes it worse. Okay. Marcus, great to have you along for the ride as ever. Thank you very much indeed. This was The Cable. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.